back to Thrive. Today we're talking about the top three contractual gaps for agencies. And my guest is Sharon Torek. How are you doing today, Sharon? Hi, Kelly. I'm great. It's good to be here. I am so excited to talk to you. Today we're talking about these contractual gaps. And um, so you own Legal and Creative in, in Cleveland, IP advertising and marketing law firm. Right. And um, I just think it's going to be a great show because a lot of agency owners that I talk with or who write into me are always asking me, you know, different kinds of legal questions and I have to find some kind of resource. So now this show is going to be a great resource to them as well. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so everyone, after the show, head over to legalandcreative.com to download your free marketing agency legal audit checklist. All right. Yeah. So Sharon, let's start today by talking a little bit about um, the, the dreaded three-letter MSA, <laughs> <laughs> Master Service Agreements for Client Engagements, um, right. and, and what you typically advise clients on when there are smaller projects or even like one-off projects. How, do, how should they handle things like that? Well, I mean, you know, fundamentally, the first thing I always like to share when it comes to client contracts for agencies is that I'm not really hung up on what you call them. Um, what I'm hung up on is making sure the agency protects itself appropriately, given the size of the risk involved and the work you're going to be doing for your client. So what we typically recommend um, is that you have two documents in your toolkit that help you with your agency client relationships from a legal perspective. And these are just, um, the titles are just that. You can rename them if you, I actually had an uh, agency owner approach me after a conference presentation and he said, we don't believe in contracts uh, at our agency. And I started to talk with him a little bit more. And he said, because, you know, our point of view is that the client can leave whenever, you know, they want to leave and so can we. And I said, okay, so how do you, how do you express what work you're going to be doing for the client? And he said, well, we have a statement of work. And I said, well, I don't care what you call it. Right. The idea is that you've got something in writing that says what's going to happen and what the legal terms are. So what we generally advise are two, um, one or the other of the following. And every agency should really have both. First of all, the MSA, the Master Service Agreement. And even if you're an agency um, that tends to work off what the client presents to you in terms of documentation, having a master service agreement of your own is an absolute top recommendation for any agency because it's going to give you your own um, benchmarking tool for actually reviewing a master service agreement that a client might present for you. So a master service agreement is more appropriate really for the larger volume right. or longer term or larger client relationships that your agency has. Um, that's for a few reasons. You typically need uh, a more robust agreement. And then secondly, most clients of that size or who are, are throwing projects your way that are of higher dollar volume are going to expect a more comprehensive agreement and they're more comfortable um, with a master service agreement than something that's more abbreviated. For other relationships where your agency is working strictly on a project basis or for those lower dollar, lower dollar projects that you're working on for a client, having a short form set of legal terms and conditions that you can incorporate into your statement of work or your proposal or your estimate, however you like to coin them um, at your agency, is a great tool as well because it enables you to capture all the essential legal provisions for the engagement. Um, in a less formal and a more abbreviated way. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. 
So we need an MSA and we need the short form. Legal, legal terms and conditions. conditions. Right. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so now let's change gears a little bit and talk about freelancers, right? There's so many right. people that are leaving agencies and they're becoming freelancers or consultants. Right. Um, what do agencies need to know from a protection standpoint in regard to independent contractors? Because I know that comes up every single day uh, with agencies. Sure. It's, um, it's actually tangentially related to how I got into the industry of working with marketers and then agencies, oh, really? which is because, yeah, I mean, my, I'm an intellectual property lawyer by training and background. And I think agencies tend to undervalue how much intellectual property they're actually creating. And this is the case when you're using um, a freelancer or an independent contractor as well. And the top thing that most agencies don't realize is that when you're engaging somebody to help you create client deliverables, um, if they're not your employee, then you don't own the rights to the work that they do for you, even after you've paid for it, which is an insult, I know, to many of us, um, unless you've got something in writing that says so. And so it's definitely necessary for every agency to have in their toolkit an independent contractor agreement that includes provisions like IP ownership of the work that the freelancer creates for your agency. Uh, because remember that in most cases, you're going to be required to give ownership of that work to your client at right. some point, and you can't convey what you don't own. Right. So it's really a chain of title question more than anything else. Um, and also, you want to pay attention to issues like uh, restrictive covenants, confidentiality, addressing the ability to display work in portfolios, um, and uh, other related issues that are important to nail down with a freelancer because your freelancer is going to be stitching together gigs, right? To earn a living. And so they may be working directly with brands in some cases, they may be working with other agencies in your market. And so you want to nail down, um, an understanding relative to those areas uh, of your relationship as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then, um, maybe not so much from the legal standpoint, but maybe from, um, some other tax implication standpoints, don't you also have to have um, some kind of sheet or, or information from each freelancer or independent consultant with, you know, proof of the fact that they are not an employee, they have their own business card, they don't, uh, the hours that they work are not predicated based on, you know, your schedule, like those types of things? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, there's the IRS specific um set of criteria that governs whether somebody is really an independent contractor versus someone who should be treated like an employee mm -hmm. for tax purposes. So it's always good to be cognizant of what those major requirements are. And they are things like, um, do they have their own independent workspace? Right. Do they set their own work hours? Right. Do they, um, you know, do they come and go as they please? And is the relationship you know, at will. And one of the factors is, do you have a written agreement with them? Mm. Because if you have an arm's length contract with somebody that's clearly states they're an independent contractor, that's going to tick off a lot of the boxes as far as the IRS con is concerned about whether or not somebody is treated as an employee versus an independent contractor. And it's an important distinction because in many cases these days with agencies, sometimes you're almost embedding these people into your agencies. They're coming to your place of work to meet with clients. Um, you're giving them business cards that have your company's name and logo on them. It's a little slippery slope. <laughs> it does. And in some cases, using titles for them that make them seem like they're part of your leadership team. And so, 
you know, there are those um, IRS criterion that are important in every industry to discern whether someone's an important, uh, an independent contractor. And then there are things you want to address in your agreement with them that are more industry specific. Right. So there is crossover between the legal implications and the, the IRS and tax implications. Absolutely. And, and, and getting the, the legal relationship nailed down appropriately can go a long way towards helping you fulfill what the IRS expects in yeah. terms of the way you treat an independent contractor. Yeah. Um, and I know the last time that we spoke, uh, you were telling me that a lot of your work at Legal and Creative really focuses around social influencers. And I know that, you know, you guys are very well positioned as a, as a, uh, a law firm specifically for, for creative agencies. So it's interesting to me that, you know, you, you do so much work with social influencers, which clearly sets you apart from a lot of other um, uh, law firms, even law firms that specialize in agencies, because social mm -hmm. influencers is a very, very specific space, right? It so, is very specific. Yeah, it is. Um, and it, yeah. So what, what kind of things do agencies need to consider with with their relationships with uh, social or digital influencers in particular? Well, they want to make first the first thing I always say to agencies who want to recommend influencer strategies to their clients is that it's as much about the experience of education um, of everybody who's in the chain as it is about compliance. And what I mean by that is most of the time, an influencer campaign that goes sideways because it's not complying with the FTC's rules regarding um, transparency and disclosure uh, is because nobody who was supposed to know the rules knew the rules um, or had an adequate set of understandings about the rules. So, you know, your first role as an agency, not only should your team be educated, but your client's marketing team needs to be educated. And then they need to make sure that they are working with influencers who also understand the rules of the road. So the first part of of the task is really one of making sure everyone is on the same page and you get there with communication and education. The next thing then thereafter that you address is making sure your agreements um, with both the client and the influencer um, carry through everybody's understanding about who's going to be monitoring the campaign for compliance. Mm -hmm. Um, what the basic rules are for um, being compliant with the FTC's expectations and and what the process is going to be for sweeping up quickly because influencer marketing is very viral. It right. almost exclusively uses social channels. And once something's out there, it's out there. So um, it's about having well-documented processes for reacting to something that doesn't go well. Right. And all this ought to be reflected in your legal toolkit in the form of an influencer or brand ambassador agreement. Again, I'm not really as hung up on what it's called as I am on what it includes. And do yourself a favor and include, you know, a summary of what the FTC requires and make that an exhibit to the agreement so that somebody's got sort of a cheat sheet to refer to so that they understand what the rules are and how to follow them. That's a great idea. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I God. <laughs> no, no, I was just going to say, you know, part of the battle, I mean, use your legal agreements and your documents as business tools. That's the goal at the end of the day, right? To help you um, minimize your risk. But if you can also use them to to help people understand how to comply, um, they're doing double duty for the same amount of work invested. Right. 
And typically with the social um, influencers, are the, are the agreements with them typically with the agency or with the end client or both? Uh, I've seen all three situations. Okay. I've seen, or I should say both situations. I've seen them contract directly with the brand where the brand has a relationship. And that's particularly true in the case of, um, you know, macro influencers or even some minor celebrities who the brand might be using. Um, I've seen the agency contract directly with the influencers if they're the ones tasked for finding these folks. And then I've seen three-way agreements between um, brand, agency, and influencer. So it's typically going to be two out of those three, again, to create that chain of of relationship between the influencer and the end brand. You know, and I can tell you as far as the FTC is concerned, um, everybody in the chain is responsible. Um, what we're seeing so far is the FTC looking to brands first, influencers second, and, and now agencies increasingly, uh, especially where it's clear that agencies are either being lazy about following the rules or willfully just disregarding them. Interesting. So it sounds like if all parties would be responsible, it sounds like the direction that those contracts might move in is that it would require all three parties to be included in them, right? Yeah, I think so. Or that they, or that you have mirror agreements that sort of point to one another. Um, I would extend that also to um, the issue of privacy, because as privacy laws are tightening up and agencies work on campaigns that are more um, data specific and involve more personal information, right. we'll see the liability um, spread out equally amongst agencies, brands, and instead of influencers, third-party, you know, data manipulators or warehouses. Right. Great. Yeah. So that also probably means that their business insurance is going to go up as well. <laughs> they do. It, it will. And so every agency needs to be regularly looking at yeah. its insurance portfolio, not only general liability, but errors and omissions. Yeah. And in some cases, special riders for influencer stuff yeah. and for cyber. Very interesting. Really, really good uh, points there. Um, so as we start to wrap up, can you share with me an example of um, an agency client, uh, obviously anonymously, but an agency client that you've worked with where something that you put in place for them from a legal perspective helped mitigate something, um, you know, some kind of liability that came up, some kind of issue? Uh, is there something that you can point to just to kind of give some context to the work that you do? Yeah, I, uh, let's see. Well, I, this is an example of a story that probably didn't start out very happy, but ended up being a learning moment for the agency ultimately. Well, this will help it down the line. Um, they spent a lot of time putting together, and I'm going to mask some of the details so that I anonymize this as much as possible. Let's say a campaign. They spent a lot of time putting together um, a tremendously visual impactful campaign that ultimately incorporated imagery that came visual and still imagery that came from a lot of different sources. Okay. Um, and they thought they were licensing everything and getting permissions appropriately. But when you dug for, but they didn't have the work reviewed early on um, by, by their, you know, by the client's legal team and the agency um, didn't have its legal team look at it either. And they spent almost a year putting the campaign together and right before it was ready to be released said, well, you know, let's call the lawyer and see if we're okay using, you know, all this imagery. And about 80% of it was improperly oh, licensed. 
either because it was stuff that was not available for use whatsoever, but mostly because um, they had not um, properly licensed it or they thought they had a specific kind of license and it was a different kind of license. And um, so this is an example where, first of all, the contract needed to have been clear on the liability for something like this, um, which they probably ticked that box off. But um, we were able to turn it into a teaching moment by helping them put processes in place for making sure they analyze these licenses every time they got a third-party asset and wanted to put it in. This happens all the time. Of course. Font, photography, video, code, yep. whatever. Um, and so the teaching moment there was training and putting some uh, some minor processes in place that were easy to follow, but and that ultimately saved them will save them a lot of time and money in the future because they'll they'll know what checklist to go to and what process to follow to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And thankfully, yeah. they came to you for that review before actually, you know, uh, distributing the campaign because that would yeah been, that would have been a lot more work for you. <laughs> it would have been a lot more work for me, but my goal is to help them avoid it in Absolutely. the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sharon, this has been really fun. Um, I love the conversation. I think there's a ton of value that you're providing to the agency leaders that are listening and watching today. So I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Kelly. And I love the work you're doing to help agencies out too. So it's been fun to have the conversation. Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by Workamajig, the number one creative agency management software. Show notes at thrive.workamajig.com. Find out how your creative agency can become more productive and more profitable. Schedule your demo at thrive.workamajig.com.